This is True Multifamily, the show where we dive in on what really happens after closing a multifamily property. We're going to expose the role of asset manager. That's a person who has a responsibility of seeing the vision, executing the plan, and managing people, budgets, and timelines, all to deliver returns for our investors. These are the real struggles, the real victories, and the real stories of asset management. Welcome back to another episode of True Multifamily. I'm your host, Justin Fraser. Man, we are back from a hiatus. I'm so excited. I'm re-energized. It's the start of 2022. And man, we have some amazing projects going on. And so this episode, I need to catch you guys up on everything that's happening with myself and DeRosa Group. We had we ended 2021 with a bang and we are sprinting into 2022. So as the asset manager of DeRosa Group, you guys know we have a lot going on with our businesses, the business of running apartment complexes. And man, we had a refinance, we had a sale, we are working on a new project, we had incredible value add, we had team holiday parties. I mean, so many different crazy things happening here at the end of the year. I want to talk you guys through it, but I can't do it alone. I today brought in my business partner, Mr. Matt Faircloth. Matt, welcome to the show. Welcome. uh, Thank you, Justin, for welcoming me to the show and for having me here. I think this is my my second time. The second time on the show. Actually, fourth time. Fourth. Yes. It shows how much it meant to me and how much it impacted (laughs) that I can't remember how many times I've been here. That's okay. That's okay. You know, Matt and I talk all day long. He doesn't know when I'm recording or not. I'm not sure. Right. He could have just taken Zoom calls that he and I did and made them (laughs) podcasts and I wouldn't know. Well, we had some early in COVID. We had uh, we had some going. We had a big 50th episode with with Irve, and uh, and here we are again, kicking off 2022. And uh, who better to have with me than my partner in crime here, Mr. Matt Fairfield? So, um, Matt, for anyone that has not listened to our previous shows or doesn't know of DeRosa Group, give us the uh, the one minute overview on DeRosa Group, and of course, please hit on transforming lives. Sure. Um, so, yeah, Matt Faircloth, DeRosa Group's the name of our company, DeRosaGroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A, for those who want to check it out. Um, and we we were founded uh, I mean, 16 years ago. I mean, it did by my wife, Liz, and I. DeRosa is her mother's maiden name. We just thought it was a good, a good name to uh, speak to a company that we wanted to found and make it large, make it a company that was larger than us and, you know, and everything like that. So, uh, that's DeRosa Group, and we've been involved in all kinds of cool stuff like residential rentals and fix and flips. And um, we've really decided that we can make the most impact for our company mission by getting into multifamily um, and also uh, for, for all the reasons. So uh, DeRosa's mission is to transform lives through real estate. And we can touch the most amount of lives in multifamily. Multifamily matters the most with regards to just roofs are what matters the most to people. Where jobs matter, um, those kinds of things, you know, where people shop matters. But where they live makes a, we found, makes the deepest impact onto someone's life. And so DeRosa is focused on multifamily housing because uh, it enables us to carry for the company vision the best. And we can also uh, give investors a great return on their money while they know that their money's making a difference too. This is what DeRosa is committed to do is to make a difference in people's lives while we also provide them great market rate housing. Uh, so the, the transfer, the lives that are transformed are our tenants by living in great uh, properties that are safe, that are uh, community-based uh, properties, family-oriented um, properties that people want to stay and make home forever. That's what we want to create. Um, and the uh, the staff that helps us create those things, and sometimes that staff is asked to take uh, to to grab the reins on a property that maybe is not a safe community-based. Uh, uh, property, as Justin and I will talk about today, maybe they're not that, but that staff gets the privilege of working alongside us and locking locking arms with us and taking capital we produce to make that property better. Uh, and that's fulfilling, isn't it? I mean, it's making the world a better place and making, uh, you know, making properties home uh, for people is fulfilling. And so the staff is fulfilled as well. Um, and of course, our investors get Great returns while knowing their money's their money's out while they, they can make money while they make a difference. Um, and it just shows up in all the different ways and what we do. And that's DeRosa Group. And that's our mission is to transform lives to real estate. 
I love hearing you talk about that. And obviously that was one of the things that really um, attracted me to work with the Rosa group. And we'll, we'll get into the backstory a little bit, but you know, I always tell people, you know, we're in the business of multifamily investing, um, but transforming lives is really at the core. And we take that very seriously And that everything from the amenities we place, you know, playgrounds and, and cleaning up the crime at our properties uh, to make our tenants lives better. Um, our staff lives better, right? We, we pay our staff very well and compensate them accordingly with how well our properties perform. Um, and then our management companies that we use. And then of course us and our investors like that we can do this business in a way that we all make money together and uh and make our tenants lives better uh at the forefront so uh it's a great mission and something that that i believe strongly in and that's really the core of how we build our business plans and where we spend money at our properties and and it really flows on through so that is our sort of guiding principle but Mm -hmm. matt let's let's take it back let's talk about you know we we just had a big win here um but four years ago really you and i started well, actually, four years ago, you purchased um, Douglas Square, right? The Rose Capital mm-hmm. 8. Yeah. About three years ago, a little, on, a little more than three years ago, you and I started working together. So yeah. talk us just what what was Douglas Square? What, what size property and what did it mean to the DeRosa Group when, when you purchased it? It was a 198-unit uh, building, um, really two sites at the time called the uh, Oakdale Apartments in Watuga Manor. Um, lovely, awesome names. And, um, the, those, uh, the, it was two properties that were separated by a barbed wire fence. Um, and, uh, and that with, with like this little coal cut in the middle of the barbed wire fence, the tenants could drive through. Um, it was, uh, it was a sad apartment complex. It was really poorly managed by the local owner who managed it local and just was, should have never really gotten to real estate, um, because they weren't going to put the time or the wherewithal or the money into investing. And a lot of people buy real estate thinking that they can just, you know, pull out as much as they can out of it without putting stuff into it. And we are not of that philosophy. So we rolled our sleeves up and saw this as a property that was in a great location. It's great. It's right in the center of Fayetteville, North Carolina, um, right on a major road, very visible, you know, uh, very close to jobs and the mall and everything like that. So proximity was great. The bones of the building were good. It was just it was a management play. Um, and so uh, we got in and rolled our sleeves up and, and got approved for a large loan to go into a major reinvestment or repositioning into the property and to uh, to go and put money into turning those units around and bringing them to the next level. And uh, And it was a long road. And we ended up going through one property manager and into another one. Um, and, uh, we, we had, had a lot of tenants that were not going to, didn't want to live in the new property because they wanted a property that they could kind of hide out and be under the radar, a lot of crime, uh, a lot of those kinds of things. So we had to get a lot of that out, Justin. And I, I don't know if you want to get into the stories of, of, or just more details there, but we're really grateful that that Derosa Capital 8 and what it has a new name, uh, or had a new name, it's got another name now, but, uh, had a, had a name that we gave it, which was uh, Douglas Square on Hope Mills. Um, at personal note, my father grew up in Fayetteville. Um, he's not around anymore, um, but uh, but he uh, was that was his hometown. His middle name was Douglas. His father, who also grew up in Fayetteville's middle name, was Douglas. My middle name is Douglas, and my uh, my little guy, uh, my little eight year old, his middle name is Douglas as well. And so I thought that was a good homage, really, to my lineage and my father's uh, my father's name to call it uh, Douglas Square on Hope Mills. And um, I'm grateful that you can play the you know, do a little subtle subtleties like that in real estate uh, property needs a name. Might why not? He's from there. So, uh, so Douglas yeah, Home Mills is a great yep. success story. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, I, I love that you named it after your family. Um, and so I, I sort of viewed Douglas square. It was a four year hold. Um, yep. the, the punchline is we just sold it. And so yeah. uh, we finally closed and I sort of view it, you know, each year as, um, as its own section. So, so year one of Douglas square was actually before That's I got true. involved. It's like four times. stories. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And so Douglas square was purchased and, you know, immediately like some management mistakes. And, and we own that. And we've talked about that publicly as well, that, that as an ownership group were made as the management group were made and occupancy just sort of fell through the floor. Right. Just that was the manager's occupancy. fault, by the way. Uh, um, sure. And I mean, we kind of got, we, we, the, the, the property, and I won't say the property management company's name, but I'll just say, that they had intentions to expand into North Carolina. They had high, they had made local hires of regional staff, but right after we closed, the regional manager quit. 
literally right after. And she was supposed to be the impetus of expanding their business into North Carolina. And she quit. And they tried to manage this property from several states away. So that was immediately one of the first red flags. Yeah. To say, hey, we don't have real local representation um, in, in that. So that, that was the first one. And then the second, the second domino was... We had the business plan of going in and renovating all these apartments um, and raising rents because a lot of these properties were hundreds of dollars below market. The new property man, the property management company we hired originally, uh, the, the the site manager that works in the office, t- took it upon herself to go and put a letter on every tenant's door and tell them that we were going to be renovating apartments and raising rents and that they were only going to have two options. You can either move out of the complex or you can move into a renovated unit, the end. Uh, And so tenants said, okay, we'll make that decision easy for you. Um, And the site uh, occupancy went from like 75% when we took ownership down to around 30% within a month. All these tenants just saying, you know what, we're moving out. You know, stop right there. Pro tip for everybody. Don't mass email your tenants or message your tenants or put notices on the door and say, hey, by the way, all your rents are going up or you got to move on out of here because, man, that what did that do? It drops occupancy. And now you're not even making money right now. You're probably yeah. only making enough money to, to pay the mortgage. First of all. Like, uh, you know, you, it's hard to do something like that without a conversation with the tenant. Say, hey, let me tell you why we're going to earn that additional rent, you know, from you. But secondly, it's maybe not the right thing to do to go and just start, you know, mandating or start jacking people's rents up and stuff like that. We don't really, we don't do that as Transforming Labs to Real Estate. So the property manager misread messaging from us and went and did that on their own. Um what we do now is we do reno in place. So if the if we need to get a rent increase out of the tenant, we will go to them and say, "Hey, why don't you stay in your apartment?" And we'll go and do some uh, reno in place stuff. We'll maybe swap out your appliances, maybe swap out some light fixtures, things like that. Um, that's the right way to do it, and it's just a win-win. The tenant doesn't have to move. Um, they do have to get a little bit closer to market, especially if they're paying good but under under market rents. Um, and hopefully they're able to afford to do that. And uh, and and but they don't have to move. You don't need them to move out of their apartment into a new apartment just because you need to get maximize, max rent out of them. I mean, they are human yeah. beings as well, too. So We have to be methodical about it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and even if the end result is to totally turn over the tenant base, we plan on doing that over three years, not in one month, right? Mm-hmm. So we do. Right. We need to keep the occupancy to keep that money coming in and gradually turn the community. And so we start with the vacants and we start, you know, slowly by slowly to, to renovate um, the property and sort of move across the property. Because man, we, what a lesson learned, right? Rip the bandaid off and your occupancy tanks. And that really set us back to, to start off this project. And that whole first year, you know, just really trying to, to climb out and figure out this management situation where the managers are working from, from out of state and, uh, and all the tenants have left. And that was around the time that, that I got involved. And uh, I come on as asset manager for DeRosa Group and uh, specifically for that project. And, you know, for me, it was figuring out how to be an asset manager because, you know, I came from a software background. I was a software project manager. I was not a multifamily asset manager except for the, the, the 40 unit that we had done. And, uh, you know, it was a matter of figuring, figuring things out. And so we actually kept that management company on probably, we, well, we knew we wanted to leave them, but, but we couldn't for a while just because of the, the, the performance of the property. Um, and so year two was really like just trying to get our heads above water, trying to figure out how to renovate, how to spend as much money as we could in the right places to get that new tenant base in while also dealing with crime and also dealing with these managers that were, were tough to deal with. And, you know, we, we had some, some personalities that we had to deal with over there as far as different staff, you know, in the office, out of the office. And it felt like every time we visited the property, it would, you know, the, the, the management team just had no oversight. And so they were doing whatever the heck they wanted to do. And uh, we've, you know, we really struggled with that for a while. Um, but it was around the end of year two, Matt, is when we got our new management company in place. And I believe that was critical for our success in turning mm-hmm. the property around. You know, and this new management company came in and just all the credit in the world to them, right? They were able to gain control over the property. They are local, right? They know the people. They know the people that are working at the property. They know the contractors. They know the code enforcement officers. And it really showed to us the 
the criticality of having a strong local presence on your management company. You manage like seven other buildings in the city, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and that's strong. That's not like, Hey, I'm trying to expand here and you're my first building in the state. Um, they had uh, seven others uh, in, in the state and the first PM company had, you know, kind of told us we wanted to hear and that's, Oh, we've got others lined up. We were hiring more people. We're doing this, we're doing that. But it, it very quickly became evident that n- none of that was really true. And they really weren't going to be able to expand to the state. Like they told us they were going to very quickly. Uh, so the other property management company having staff and having all these things lined up, were able to just jump on this property. They knew market rents that, you know, they, they knew everything there was to know. They could just yeah wind them up and let them go. That's right. And, um, they also gained control over the construction side of things and really got our contractors in line. We were using some contractors that were not super efficient, not super honest, not super organized. <laughs> we just sort of hit, had a whole bunch of mess happening. And this, this management company got rid of the mess and, and really started to clean up with process and, and uh, strong implementation. And so that I think was, I know was, was the turnaround there. And, you know, from the point that they came in, we just started systematically renovating and renovating units to a very high quality of standard. It cost us more per door than we wanted to, but uh, all of a sudden we had a better class of tenant coming in. The reviews online started getting better. The overall um, appearance of the property felt safer and more welcoming and inviting every time we visited the property. And so year three was that that kind of build back, right? We started climbing in occupancy, climbing in financial performance, and really getting back to a, a point where the property was was starting to do pretty well. Well, we also, and I mean, uh, let's be straight. I mean, it's hard to crawl out of the hole of going down to 30, 40% occupancy. And there were some moments where we had that were darker moments of ourselves. We were just like, you know, uh, can we, is there a way we could sell this property and at least get investors our money back? Um, I remember having those conversations and, and yeah. you know, I was one that said, no, we're not doing that. We That's not what these investors signed up for. So I still think that we've got runway here. And so we refinanced that property. We went from a bridge loan that has construction uh, dollars attached to it, refinanced it into another bridge loan and took another bite at the apple per se um, to go and get another round of construction dollars to put into this property and uh, and that. And just someone call that risky. I call that just sticking to your business plan, you know, that it just, that's just what it took. Because um, our first lender had had enough. And they said, you know what, we, this, this is not what we signed on for either. Uh, you know, we want to make this a friendly exit. So we'd like for you guys to do what you can to get us out of this property. So we did. Um, we got them out. It was a friendly, okay, message received. Thank you. <laughs> got them out of the deal, refinanced to another lender. And that love that another lender came in and saw it, saw the business plan, loved what we wanted to do then injected further capital up to, to be invested into the property. And so then you've got, you know, Justin, uh, the asset manager with a fresh set of capital in his pocket to put, to work in the property, a new team, uh, that was local, including a new construction manager and a new management team, um, that knows the market, all these things align and we start to get going we, we start to get some stride going and Justin starts to get a, like get ahead of the renovations. And before you know it, we've got rental moving and construction's happening. And then there's COVID. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, um, thankfully, you know, we had enough momentum going into COVID. We had a lot of momentum going into COVID. COVID and was the best thing that ever happened to that property. It, it really did well. Tell, tell us about, tell us, why do you say that? Why do you say COVID was the best thing that ever happened to that property? Cause you go into COVID Every other property, and I'm not saying that tongue in cheek, I, I should note that I know COVID touched a lot of lives in not a good way, right? Um, and that's, I'm not being uh, flip about COVID or anything like that, right? But we walked into COVID at 50% occupancy at that time. We were able to get occupancy up a little bit, right? Construction team still moving, looking for work. I mean, they didn't want to just sit at home and watch Netflix. They wanted to keep going, right? So uh, we let the construction team keep moving and renovating units. Um, and my man Justin here came up with a plan uh, to lease and show apartments. Every other apartment complex in in, uh, in Fayetteville shut down. It wasn't doing showings, shut down the marketing, said, okay, we, we believe them when they say two weeks to stop the spread, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. two weeks to flatten the curve. Remember that? 
right? Yeah. We're working on those two weeks. It's the longest two weeks I've ever been in, right? So they shut down and waited and the two weeks kept extending and pushing out and everything like that. So we kept going and Justin designed a online touchless showing model where tenants could uh, express interest. They had an online Twitter and Instagram, not Twitter, but an Instagram marketing program for the vacant units. People would come in, uh, they would express interest. They could show themselves the apartment without touching or coming anywhere near the human being. Um, if they were interested, they could apply and sign a lease and turn in their deposit online. And we were the only ones doing that. And now everybody's doing that. Right? It's not like Justin invented anything. He just, just aligned a lot of technology that was there. So I would say, Justin, in like six to eight months of COVID, we went from 50% occupancy up into the 80s and 90s. You know, we we, we ratcheted up quick, A, because you kept the pedal down on construction, kept it moving and kept that. And we, we threw a lot of money at social media marketing for vacant units. And a lot of people that needed to move for one reason or another were able to move. And because of all that, you got us some of the best tenants that were out there. You know, Um, now we can pick and choose because I got a vacant building, right? Every other property out there on the market is subject to an eviction moratorium. So you can't get your bad payers out. We don't have that many of them because it's only 50% occupied. I got plenty of these vacant units. So we're able to pick people that are able to pay when they came in the door, right? Um, and, uh, and we didn't have to deal, like we always had a vacant unit where the 95% occupied company, uh, is like, well, we haven't renovated yet and we can't get a contractor and we're not doing my leasing agents, you know, home on quarantine or got COVID or whatever. So we can't do a showing, um, and everything. So like I said, COVID enabled us to fill the property up with some of the best paying tenants we could, um, and, and very quickly, uh, fill the property up. And that really rounded us around the, we really rounded second base at that time. Yeah. You know, we were able to, we had the, since we had the cash from the second refinance, we were able to like mass order, um, our cabinets and our appliances and everything. And so where, um, some people had to do ones and one and two offs, we were able to place these big orders and get ahead of it. And then as they started coming in, we had three crews at one point, three companies turning units at the same time, each of them with multiple units in their queue. So we were probably renovating 10 to 15 units a month, more than that, even in some months, uh, depending on material availability. So while we did get stuck with some material issues, uh, we had ordered enough and we put these big shipping containers at the property and just stored everything securely in there. And as soon as those units were ready and the crew was done with the next unit, they could move on to the next one and, and keep on going. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that, Matt, and we've renovated all these units. And uh, here comes our uh, our broker friend kind of knocking on the door saying, hey, do you guys know what this thing is worth? <laughs> do, you, do you know what's happening over there? We were going to re- we were talking about refinancing it at the time and keeping it and stuff like that. But I was like, you know, let's at least entertain the idea of selling. Um, because truth be told at this time, uh, that we were three years in and we had not paid a nickel to our investors because we are not a syndication company that's going to just, you know, keep our investors in the dark or treat them like mushrooms. If you will, you guys have to Google that one. I'm not going to say it on Justin's show, but, um, right. Uh, yeah, but we, we didn't want to do that to our investors. We're, we are transparent. And so if the property's not doing well, we're not going to pretend that it is and pay investors or pref uh, that, that's not earned and the property's not able to produce. Sorry, that's not our syndication company. Other syndication companies will just keep paying investors a preferred return, even if the property is just wrapping itself around a tree. This property had not paid anything. So we were getting, uh, investors were patient, I get, and they get that this that these things sometimes take a while to turn around, you know, some factors outside of our control, you know, da, da, da. So uh, they were being patient, but I also wanted to do right by them. And I thought that a nice little shot in the arm from a sale might be the best thing to do. I mean, that's the best way to keep investors happy is to give them a, a nice big profit. So we brought these brokers in and they were blown away by what they were seeing in the transition that we were making and by the velocity we were leasing up and by our collection rate, not just our occupancy, but by how many dollars we were collecting. Uh, what is it? Our, econom- our uh, economic occupancy, meaning like yeah. how many of the warm bodies that are staying in the apartments are actually paying their rent. And that had to do with our lease up efforts during COVID. So for a lot of reasons, it's trying to make more sense. You know, we could produce a phenomenal, you know, rate of return for investors if we were to put it up for sale. And so that we started to hover around that closer and closer. 
Yeah. And so if we want to put some numbers around it, you know, we bought, we bought that property for about $6.7 million. Yeah. Right? We put about two and a half million dollars into just under a little less than two and a half million dollars into it. A lot of work. Roofs and unit <laughs> yeah. turns and oh yeah, play plier in multiple dog park once and then a dog park again because it didn't work <laughs> as the because the knucklehead did it really bad the first time and all that. So just a, a lot of reno um, and and just really a, a lot of untangling of things. And the property was dated, so we had to do some life safety issues like breakers and uh, aluminum wiring and all that, and make the property more ironclad and safe uh, moving forward because that is another thing that we're committed to do. To put all that money in, and that's what is that? Da, 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 that's that's nine point two million in total capital cost, and went under contract for um, originally fifteen nine. Then we had another buyer come in and bring it up to sixteen five. Is what it went yeah. under contract for. That's right. Yeah, so sixteen five, and, and our strike price with the broker was about fifteen million. No, that's what they we thought we what they would get what they could get for us. We thought we'd walk out of there with a strike price of fifteen, and and here comes our sixteen five uh, offer that we ended yeah. up taking. So talk us through that process as far as you know what you're thinking when when that offer comes in, and and what do we do from here. Well, I think that, you know, you and I would have been fine at 15, but I think that you and I had bigger aspirations and we, we knew we could do uh, for our investors because the property just kept doing better every month. Like every month, the NOI went up 5,000, you know, um, every month more units would lease up every month. Uh, they were able to increase rents and things like that. So it just, we felt like 15 could have been a little conservative and, and that's so we went in with 15 as our bottom line number. Um, broker puts it on the market. And this is a testament to using a uh, broker that has a big national reach. We got towards the end there, Justin, I got phone calls every week, sometimes twice yeah. a week saying, Hey, are you open to selling? Are you open to selling? Are you open to selling? Um, but we work with a national brand broker. Uh, it's important to, to talk to all brokers when you go to buy a property. But when you go to sell, I believe using a national brand is important because they have a deep mailing list and they know how to run a multiple bid scenario for you. So bottom line, guys, we got 19 bids on the property to buy it. Right, Justin? Amazing. Um, yeah. I know some of a lot of low balls in there. It's not like all 19 were, were viable. Um, but we took like the top five that were all within like a couple hundred grand of each other. And we did interviews. Um, and the broker was masterful at, you know, going to those folks and saying, Hey, you've made the next round. Congratulations. Um, and, uh, and those folks all came up again on their, on their offer, you know? Um, and then Justin and I did interviews and some of the interviews were stellar, um, with some great companies that own thousands of units and, you know, backed by hedge funds and stuff like that. Uh, other ones were not, not quite as impressive and that's okay, but it's still good to have the conversation. And, um, you know, some folks you could clear probably weren't ready yet for this size property, but, but they had put a good offer out there. So we wished them well and, um, and everything. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was my take on the bidding process. And then we can go into the, you know, how we ended up at 16.5 if you want. Yeah. Well, it, uh, for me, it was so interesting to be on the selling side of the transaction because so often we're on the buying side looking for our properties uh, to buy. And here we are sitting at the other end of the table and vetting all these guys. And um, I was very impressed by uh, a handful of those buyers and learned from them the way they answered certain questions and showed off their professionalism. And uh, I thought it was a very eye-opening experience as to how, as a buyer, you can present yourself in the, in the most attractive light. And I think that we've taken some things from that and uh, adapted how we present ourselves on those sort of best and final uh, buyer interviews, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I'll give you examples. Um, the, uh, it, I think we put our, we put our foot forward, uh, fairly well here when we present ourselves on interviews and we've, you know, I think we've won more than we've lost when we've made it to the interview, but a good tip that I learned for myself when I go on an interview and that a lot of, as some of these buyers did, uh, and this is a good for those listening that want to, um, that already are on buyer interviews or want to get on buyer interviews for multifamily, um, you have to understand that there are things that are going to come up and you can't have a perfect property that you're going to retrade somebody on retrade means renegotiate the price, renegotiate the terms. If stuff, a little nuance comes up that it's like, Oh, wait a minute. I thought there were doorbells on the apartments, Justin, and I'm going to go and charge you $5 a unit because there's not a doorbell. Cause I thought there would be. And so I want, you know, 
So, but there, there are more uh, next level things that happen, issues that come up or whatever it is. The good buyers that we talked to uh, had a nice contingency in construction. And I learned very quickly to ask them on the interview, how much is your construction budget? Right. And how much of that's contingency? Because it's good to know. Yeah. Listen, we're going to roll our sleeves up and renovate this place. Not just we're going to just cross our arms and hope that the cash flow comes in. Um, Because if you're going to do that, then if anything comes up in the inspection process, you're going to want me to fix it for you or, you know, to give you money for it because you didn't have that in your budget. Right. So the better buyers had higher construction budgets and most importantly, guys had a contingency and contingency means just in case here is my just in case of emergency break class. Or if my refrigerators come in at a hundred dollars more than I thought that they were going to be, I can tap my contingency. Or if I discover that Matt and Justin have a crushed sewer pipe underneath one of these properties that they weren't aware of either. I wasn't aware of it. They weren't aware of it. Hey, crushed sewer pipe might cost 10, 10,000 to fix. You know what? We'll split that with you or we'll just take care of it ourselves, whatever it is. If they have a contingency budget, we've dealt with properties, Justin, where there were structural issues that we found mm-hmm. out about, uh, found out about later. Like, you know what? We can get that out of contingency. We're good. That's what, that's what it's there for. So that's a big tip is make sure you guys have a healthy construction budget and a contingency of just in case money. Um, then when you go on those interviews, cause they're going, it'll make that seller more comfortable knowing that you got a place to go for things exactly. that are unexpected. The, the, the strongest, one of the strongest buyers, you know, when, when we interviewed them said, here's my budget. I know about this. I know about that. We've already had our guys scope the lines. We've already had our guys do this and that, and this is our plan for your property. And we have all this contingency on top of it. So we're not going to come back and we're not going to ask you for money for this. We're not going to ask you for money for that. This is everything we know. If you're hiding something else, you know, we can talk, we can renegotiate that later on, but we already know all this other information about this property. And so they, that came off so strong and um, great lesson learned for us to, to be able to present ourselves to the next time we're buying a property to say, Hey, here's our plan. We know everything. We we've done all this homework already. This is our plan. And just gives that, that warmth and comfort to that, that seller. So mm-hmm. yeah, some great, great tips there. Yeah. So, so, Tell us what, what happened next, Matt. <laughs> we go under contract. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, no, we didn't go under. We go under LOI uh, with this buyer who's like thousands of units uh, run by a former hedge fund guy. Um, Well-funded, you know, just so impressed, Justin and I, uh, on the call. And and uh, it was just clear of the five. Like, oh, yeah, this is it. Then we had a second, we had a call with, with the number two buyer. It's just that, um, that they were neck and neck with each other price-wise. And the number two buyer was solid. It's just that their price was neck and neck. And the other the other buyer, the, the buyer we, we chose, just put together such a compelling argument and seemed to be so well-financed and just could have bought this property with their eyes closed. It was like, this is just easy. So fast forward, sign the LOI. It's Friday afternoon. Good weekend, everybody. Great. Monday morning, I get a phone call on my personal cell phone. Somehow or another, the number two guy had found out that he lost and he got a hold of my cell phone number. I still think the broker gave it to him, but um, <laughs> but got a hold of my cell phone number, leaves me a voicemail saying that he was coming up $600,000. Um, to increase their offer. And I said, you know, this guy's going to come up 50. That's then I can't even bother. You know, it's not even worth taking the risk, but 600, I called Justin, called the broker and I said, Hey, let's have a conversation. Let's find out if this guy's for real. And the broker said, yes, he's for real. He called me too and told me this is what he wants to do. Um, and I assured him that I would convey this message to you guys. Um, and so the broker did the right thing. They went to the first buyer that was under LOI and said, hey, we have a situation with the number two guys not happy, way increased his offer. What do you guys want to do? Number one guy said, no, nah, I can't do that. I'm not, and we're not going to increase to that, to that level. Best of luck. Let us know if that falls through. And so we locked in with the number two guy who came in with a Hail Mary pass and, you know, we were there. Yeah. I want to dig in on this, Matt, because I honestly wasn't sure if you were going to share that point on this podcast here, because we had verbally accepted an LOI from buyer number one. Yeah. And we went into our weekend saying, Hey, all right, great. We're all happy about the price. It's above our strike price. Uh, Our investors are going to do very well. Buyer number two comes back, get your cell phone number and says, hey, 
I'm going to blow everyone out of the water and up my, up my offer $600,000. Right. So he had to, he had uh, you got to You got to knock my side. We're already under LOI or have a, we already have a verbally accepted LOI. You have to, you know, if 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 a listener finds themselves in the situation, you gotta you know do something to impress the other side, right? Yeah. Well, talk talk share a little bit from behind the scenes because it wasn't just a it. We had to have a conversation about it, right? Because we had to talk about is this the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we struggled with it because like, we did because integrity. we. All, we Went yeah. back on our work to the first buyer, right? So talk about that decision a little bit. It's a small world, you know, and and, and it is important to uh, and this <laughs> how small the world is. We'll go back to further uh, iterations of the story, but um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, we we didn't we didn't you know we respect our reputation in the space and didn't get, didn't want to get a reputation of a flip flopper um, or of somebody who's going to just you know burn bridges quickly and stuff like that. So ran it by the broker, uh, the broker was really one that I think, you know, obviously the big brokerage house does a lot of transactions, really went off their opinion on it. And they said, listen, at this, at this amount of money, I think it makes sense for you to at least give the first. Now we could have just said number two guy, you got a deal. Great. But we went to the number one guy and said, Hey, we have a situation. He, honestly, looking back on it, Justin, if they had come up a little bit, if they had gone up, they made me met us in the middle, whatever, but they mm-hmm. didn't do anything. Uh, they was like, no, we can't go any further. So if they'd come up a little bit on their number, I probably would have given them into consideration because they gave a better interview. Um, but uh, I, it, at the time, it, it seemed like a good idea. And I think that it was a good idea for our investors. If you look back at the rate of return that our, this, this was a material move for yeah. our investors IRR um, right. that they got right. out of this deal. So it just made sense. So we did it. So we agreed, yeah. got an LOI with number two. And, and I think we made the right choice, um, not purely from a profit perspective, but from, you know, the, f- the first conversation of, well, can the first buyer match this, right? That's, that's a, you know, the, the first consideration then, all right, we have to do the right thing. Well, are we doing the right thing because we gave our, this buyer, our word or, you know, on Friday afternoon, and then now it's new conversation on Saturday, but at the end of the day, our responsibility is to our investors. And because of that material move and because of, uh, you know, talking to the broker and, and talking to the team, we, you know, we felt like that was the best decision for us and for our investors. And so um, not something that, that many people talk about that sort of thing, but I'm glad we went there and um, it was not a super easy discussion. Um, we, we really weighed the pros and cons, but at the end of the day, I feel like we made the right decision um, to go with this buyer that blew our socks off with this extra 600 K um, and they were definitely going to close, right, Matt? Yes, they were. Many minute now. <laughs> Here we go. We're going to lay a lot of money down, a lot of money hard, which I found out the hard way. That money hard really doesn't mean anything in this yeah. uh, in this circumstance. That's <laughs> it, my money hard. Bottom, I just shorten it for you guys. Money hard still doesn't mean that still means they got to sue you to get it. You know, money hard does not mean that they are they they have the right to get it if you don't say Simon says. You know, like if you stumble if you stumble at all, they don't they automatically get your hundreds of thousands of dollars of money hard. They still have to litigate to get it, which we found out right because what happened here was number two goes under contract, full legal contract, everything's good, due diligence, we're good to go, everything's fine. Uh, the property next door um, has a dry cleaner in it. And dry cleaners um, from back in the you know 50s, 60s, 70s um, used a lot of really caustic chemicals. Um, and thankfully enough, we've done research on these things. Um, and a lot of these a lot of these chemicals are no, I mean all these chemicals are no longer no longer allowed. But I actually I don't know if I told you this, Justin, but I talked to somebody and I was like, well, how do these chemicals end up in the soil? Well, because they they were so they were they were caustic. Number they were nasty. Number one, mm-hmm. like dangerous to humans to use. Number one, number two, they were very sludgy, meaning like they weren't like a fluid, so you could not pour them down the drain, Justin. You know, and so you could pay money to have these these chemicals removed from your site. And to have a chemical company come and take them and process them. But back then, that was very expensive. And so what most dry cleaners did is they would pour them into the ground right next to their property. They would just say, right. ah, go and dump this, you know, dry cleaning mud, you know, in the back behind the property where we are. And it's very common practice. It's awful idea. 
you know, in the world we live in now, I mean, you ought to be locked up for doing something like that. Right. And, and you back probably then, would be. Yeah. And, then you, and you would be, but back then they didn't know any better. You know, they, they weren't, I mean, I, maybe they're turning a blind eye, but just weren't aware that chemicals don't just dissolve after a day or two, or don't just dissipate and turn into water and flowers and sunshine. They stay there for thousands of years sometimes and just decay over time, but a very long period of time. So that dry cleaner right next door to our property was a uh, was a concern. We knew it was there when we bought uh, the property. We had to have soil tests done, and they came back positive. Buyer number two uh, does his soil test, and they come back negative. I mean, they come back positive. I mean, he gets a hot. You got You got to. You got to flip their mat. So when we did when we did our phase two buying the property, no no issue. No right? issue. No chemicals. No issues. When uh, buyer number two comes in and does their environmental test. Uh, here they're showing um, elevated levels in the soil in almost the exact same spot that we did did our digging um, back when the property was purchased. Um, so, you know, buyer got cold feet. Buyer number two got got some cold feet when uh, when this came back. And so we had to determine what the best plan was. They said they wanted to do a air quality test. So now we know there's chemical in the soil, which is the first indicator. But then the issue becomes to have those chemicals gone into the air, right? Have they come up from the ground into the air? And that could cause uh, health issues for our tenants, right? And so as we were going through this due diligence period, buyer says, yeah, we're going to do some air quality tests and and then <laughs> pick up from there. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting timing. You know, uh, we get an email saying, hey, we're going to do air quality test. We're going to put these canisters in. And then air quality, it's like, it's a little canister that just, you know, brings in the air quality from the property and it just, you know, takes it, takes a fingerprint and you send it off to the lab and have it tested in between the time of them installing those canisters for air quality and removing them. They didn't even remove them. They were in the property receiving samples at the time. The uh, buyer uh, comes in and says, okay, listen, I'm going to cancel. I'm going to cancel my contract. Right. Um, and, uh, and we're like, well, well, why? Like, well, yeah, we have cold feet and, you know, uh, our, our lawyers giving us some advice on things and stuff like that about, uh, about the, about what the environmental ramifications could be. Um, but they didn't really, they didn't have the data yet. And the contract said that they had to have data of the, uh, of, of that, of that air sample. Right. Which they didn't. And so it was a, it was perhaps a gray area, but to us a pretty black and white area that you're exiting for no cause, right? Because the, the data from the ground sample said that you needed to do an air quality test. Okay, let's do that. You didn't have the results back yet and you quit and, and you backed out. So it was at least worth a conversation. And so we are going back and forth with them and rammer, rammer, rammer. And, and the lawyers are writing nasty emails back and forth to each other. Meanwhile, our broker, uh, I, I think that what I just, he really was our hero on this thing, um, goes out and says, you know what, guys, I'll let you guys fight over the deposit. I'm going to go find you another buyer. And so he does. And within a week or two, uh, he gets us under contract with another buyer um, uh, that's willing to buy for just about the same price, you know, a little within a rounding error of the same price that we were under contract for. Um, Willing to deal with any environmental, willing to deal with any problems. You know, I understand these things work, tend to work their way out. So we went under contract with a new buyer. And not a hitch. I mean, it was one of those things, Justin, where I had to pinch myself a few times and I was worried that the other shoe was going to drop at some point. Yeah. But it never did. And the buyer closed without a problem. Well, we um, went ahead and did our own air quality test in that yes, time Justin as well, would say right? That, yes. So rather than- And how did those, and how did, was the results on the air quality? Air quality came back perfectly fine. Everything not was a acceptable level. Huh. So we don't no know why quality, that buyer sample. backed out. Yeah. Right. Um, but we got a clean bill of health from from the the additional testing. We had a uh, new buyer's lender be buyer number three. Now, new buyer's lender uh, had no problem with it, signed off on it. And yeah, we we closed. Pop the champagne. Finally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, did. we did. And it was a journey. Um, lessons learned um uh, here right in that it as as a seller it's good to perhaps do your own environmental because we had our own environmental studies done that showed a clean bill of health um and we decided to do that after buyer number two decided to get cold feet 
So Justin moved forward and got that data. It's good to have that in your pocket in case you need it. We never actually never mm-hmm. needed it, but it was good to have. Number two, as a buyer, understand that their earnest money deposit, as much as they want to call it hard and non-refundable, whatever, you know, it, it's still it, it it's still fairly soft and and all that. And I'm, it doesn't make me any less uh, cautious uh, when I buy a property, but it just really gave me the other side of things on on how things work with a, with the earnest money deposit. So right um, um, now he's citing the environmental right. The money was hard and less an environmental issue came back. He's saying that was enough of an environmental issue. But anyway, our lawyers litigated it and, and went through the whole process back and forth. And we came up with an amicable settlement. Yeah, I mean, we did. Buyer buyer got like uh, a, the majority of their money back um, yeah. in that. Yeah, just enough to cover our legal expenses because we're not fighters. I don't want to fight people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to make my living taking people to court. I want to make right. my living buying apartment buildings and making them better, exactly. Um, exactly. which is what we do. So all now, in. Now, to that, that being said, we did have legal costs. We did have extension costs. Yeah. And we actually were bumping up against an extension for our loan. And if we were about two weeks later, we would have had a $70,000 extension fee for our loan. So we kind of just got under the gun. But that's that's really why we have hard money in the, in our contracts is because there are real costs to extending once we've gone under, under contract. So I think we did reach an amicable solution, a fair solution for everybody. Um, but yeah, it's, there's definitely some, some hard costs involved with that. Yeah. Um, and it so, was all, all as well that ends well, but I mean, their investors were enamored. Um, the the tenants got to live in a greater place. The folks that work with us got to really roll their sleeves up and make a, make a really not that great property that was in a phenomenal location, make it great and make it a home for people that, that we were very proud of. And you know, more than double the value of the place. We bought it for 6.7, ended up selling for uh, 16.46. So, um, you know, more than double the value of the apartment complex and really um, may, you just create value across the board. And the That's new right. buyer is enamored because he can get in there and continue the plan continue. of making the property better and, you know, uh, taking it to the next level beyond where we did. I think this property is a perfect example of transforming lives through real estate to it bring is. it back for all those reasons you just said. Um, do you want to hit us with the final investor return numbers? How, how did our investors do on this one? Yeah, our investors got, Justin, a 30% rate of return on their money uh, annualized. So that, that's 30% per year they got over a four-year hold or a total of 120% of their investment back uh, to them from the sales proceeds. Uh, could not be prouder. Uh, that That is above our projections. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and, and, I, and I think that there's part of that in, in a rising market that helps, but it also, for the most part was that we took a property that was a real issue, real eyesore and turned it into something amazing. Um, and that, so investors got a 2.2 equity, multiple 30% IRR, um, you know, more than doubled their money. Uh, everybody's very, very happy. Absolutely. I know, I know they are because I've been hearing from them and and it's, you know, what a big win for us. Um, Matt, I thought we were going to maybe spend 10 minutes on Douglas Square. We spent the entire episode on Douglas Square. It's amazing because I love that property and I'm so proud of everything we did there. But I cannot let you go without having you tell the audience a little bit about what is coming next for DeRosa Group. What do we have in well, the pipeline? Douglas Square is a testament to it's a full cycle deal. And we've got other properties, including Diamond Ridge, which is DeRosa Capital 11, DeRosa Capital 9 that just refinanced, DeRosa Capital 10. All the DeRosa Capitals are great uh, success stories. Um, and that, and that, and DeRosa Capital Eight is of is of no difference, and it's just a, it's, a, it's just a great success story. And how we bought something that was performing subpar, and we made it made it really really run like a top. Um, we got that opportunity coming up again, man. We got DeRosa Capital Fifteen. Believe it or not, Justin, we have done fifteen. This is our fifteenth syndication as a company, um, and uh, that's DeRosa Capital Fifteen. And we're next level, man. This is a project in Lexington, Kentucky, where we have, I believe, six other apartment buildings. Um, and uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where we have one large apartment complex, and we're buying two more. And this is a straddle of two states. Uh, it's five apartment buildings, 670 units in two states. They are in various levels of condition, various business plans. Nothing is uh, Douglas Square-ish, so n- nothing that's 75% occupied with, uh, you know, with, with uh, crime at the property and whatnot. Nothing that bad. But there are properties that really need to get brought to the next level. There are properties that need some further investment. Um, their properties are a little bit dilapidated that need some TLC and some facelifting when we have our sleeves rolled up to do all that work um, for DeRosa Capital 15 and bring that entire portfolio to the next level. 
uh, great diversification that investors get by owning in multiple markets and everything. So uh, if, if the properties in Winston-Salem take a little bit longer to get there, that's okay because you got properties in Kentucky as well that are kind of pulling the whole thing up. And this is direct ownership of the properties, not a fund, not a derivative, nothing like that. This is direct ownership of the dirt um, uh, and, and, of the, uh, and, and of the tax losses and all those things. It's so going to be really a fun exciting. project. I love this project because it's it's properties in the markets that we're already in, and we're mm-hmm. so deep in these markets, and we're getting such we have such great scale and efficiency in both those markets with our managers and contractors and everything else. Um, that these the, all these properties, I know it's six hundred seventy units. It's it sounds like a ton. It is a ton, but it's sliding right into all the operations we already have going on. So uh, true multifamily listeners are going to be hearing a lot more about that opportunity because man, there's just going to be so many great stories coming out of this portfolio. But if you're listening to this in January or February of 2022, this is an open opportunity right now, right, Matt? Where, where can they go to hear more about DeRosa Capital 15? Yeah, well, they can go to derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A, derosagroup.com forward slash DC15. Um, and they can read up on the deal. They can register. It is for accredited investors only um, in that. And that's, sorry, that's an SEC rule, not mine. Um, but uh, derosagroup.com forward slash DC15 to hear more about the deal, to make a soft commit, or can schedule a call with us to hear more about it. I love it. Well, uh, Matt, I'm so excited to be continue partners with you in all of our I great DeRosa projects. Um, this is going to be an awesome one. Um, and uh, even though you're a four-time guest, we're going to have to get you back for, for a fifth to talk about all the other but DeRosa. Diamond Ridge is a whole nother story. I probably should interview you. a whole nother you, thing. Exactly. Um, on, on the Diamond Ridge stories, because Diamond Ridge has some phenomenal stories to it as well. Like the fact that 30 tenants of the 300 turned in their keys the first week. And that was welcome <laughs> um, at that because these were tenants yeah. that were not performing well, that were causing issues at the property, that were uh, not looking to treat at home. Uh, like a home, let's say, uh, and that and that made room for more and more people to come in. But that's a little teaser on on uh, on the conversations. Well, we we'll be back. Ridge. We'll be back for more. You know, I love, love Diamond to. Ridge. We've got some great great stories happening there, um, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out Matt Faircloth at the DeRosa Group, um, DeRosaGroup.com. Please check out our latest offering, DeRosaGroup.com/dc15. And uh, all of Matt's bios and links are up on our website, truemultifamily.show. Just find this episode. We would love to see you over there. And uh, Matt, I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for, for coming on the show again. Thanks, man. Really they can follow it. me on Instagram too, the Matt Faircloth. They can uh, follow me there. And uh, there's a link in my bio about uh, to learn more about us and everything like that. And keep listening to True Multifamily Show, Justin. I love what you're doing for the industry. Appreciate it, man. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to another episode. Check out our website at truemultifamily.show. And if you have an amazing story to tell, share it on our Facebook community, and you might just be the next guest on the show. We're also on all other social networks. Just search True Multifamily.